politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew our revolution of our day for the issues that matter and the way they matter at the time they matter. And what are they? Life, liberty, property, culture, sovereignty, security, prosperity, economy, all of it. It is all on the line. We don't have time here at Sierra Podcast for frivolous nonsense, but evidently other people do. And it is Tuesday, by the way, January 30th, almost done with this first month already. I want you guys to take something to the bank, a Daniel aphorism to the bank. It's kind of a long one. The left crafts ephemeral, temporary cool talking points in pursuit of their fixed objectives. The right crafts ephemeral policies or objectives in pursuit of their fixed talking points. In other words, for the right, the talking point is the point. For the left, the policy or objective or outcome is the point. So they they have their eye on a certain outcome. They have enduring principles. They know what they want to accomplish. The communism, the cultural Marxism, the open borders, and they're willing to do whatever it takes. And you know, you'll you'll harness a given talking point in the news cycle to pursue that objective. For the right, it's all about a talking point. And this has really taken off in the era of social media, where unfortunately we don't have deep thought leaders anymore. So what we have now is the mixture of a broken establishment and then a grassroots that's been broken into mindless populism that now has merged with the establishment in many cases while fake fighting it in others. And it's all about the daily talking point. So I need a talking point. Own the libs, but the libs, but that. So w- whatever we need to accommodate that talking point, we'll find a policy. And sometimes it's on the mark, but often it's off the mark. And, and we find this in many respects. And today... I want to focus a little bit on foreign policy and national security, military policy, military engagements, where, you know, we always used to have a fixed objective. Our objective was neither Wilsonian interventionism, you know, where you're uh, refereeing civil wars and, you know, policing the world, nor was it pacifism avoiding war at all costs or avoiding conflict at all costs. No, it was peace through strength. It was we look at our prerogatives, be strong at home, keep the shipping lanes open, keep our strategic interests identified and protected. Anyone who screws with it, we crush them. Anyone who doesn't, we're, we're you know, we ignore, we make the right alliances and done. Now, it's obviously foreign policy is a little bit more complicated than that. It's governed by prudence and perspicacity at a given moment. But what we have now is, as as I've noted, because we had this unit party that has failed us for so long, now we have mindless populism that just focuses on one talking point. Oh, World War III. I want to avoid World War III. Warmonger. Warmonger. Well, I mean, it's kind of off base. So what we're having now with Biden, the Biden administration being literally run by Iranian spies, 
okay? Literally siding with Hamas, siding with Iran, to the point that they put our soldiers precariously throughout Iraq, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and and our civilian diplomats to defend uh, billion-dollar embassies in Beirut and Baghdad for nothing. And then they get attacked 160 times, culminating with that attack that killed three soldiers and wounded at least 30. And then they attack our shipping, they allow the Houthis to attack our shipping lanes. And then Biden finally, like, a day late and a dollar short signals some sort of fake response, which does nothing like we saw with the Houthis, where they warned them that they were going to attack Yemen to clean out their assets. It was a joke. And then the right goes and is like, aha, Biden getting us involved in another war. It's like, wait, no, Biden is literally not just siding with Iran, but the administration is run by Iranian assets. So they're misdiagnosing the issue. Now, oh, Daniel, you want to get us into a war? Um, No, there's, there's kind of a middle ground. Yes, we should never be there in the first place with these stupid military bases defending, ironically, Iranian allies in 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 Iraq. But on the other hand, you can't just have them attack us and nothing happens before we pull out, which we should. And moreover, you got to keep the shipping lanes open. So just this vacuous, mindless reactionaryism of, oh, because the neocons were stupid for 20 years, and to me, military engagement and being tough only means that horrific 20 years of trillions of dollars and lives lost and occupying Baghdad and Kabul bag, uh, urban renewal projects and, and all this PC nonsense. So therefore, I'm just going to be a pacifist. See what I'm saying? And, and this is true on a lot of issues, a lot of issues where we really need to avoid this mentality. So we're going to talk about this with Kyle Scheidler coming up, how to achieve a balanced conservative foreign policy that legitimately keeps us strong, puts us first, and doesn't get us embroiled in something that we don't want to be involved in. But before that, another symptom you see of this mindless populism. Last week, we had this big, I mean, this was the best week ever. We were all uniting the Republican Party behind states' rights and sovereignty, fighting the feds, even fighting against judicial supremacism. And then notice, it just disappeared. And now it's all Taylor Swift all the time. So you have something that rhymes with Tucker, obsessed about Taylor Swift now. You have Jesse Waters, who's the one who took over his primetime spot on Fox, doing a whole thing of how you know Taylor Swift is a deep state asset. And we figured out the problem. The problem is Taylor Swift. Now, look, I mean, she's just another cultural degenerate. But if that is going to be our focus... We think that this is the way we beat the left. This is the way you get Trump to win the election and down the ballot, if we ever cared about that, is by exposing Taylor Swift. I I mean, this is what it is. It's all about the daily talking point. There's no continuity of agenda. Whatever happened to the border? Now, I'll tell you what happened. As I warned you, notice the Biden administration is not even vying for Shelby Park. Remember they gave an ultimatum for Friday and now it's already Tuesday and nothing happened? They gave it to them. There's no CBP officers there. There's no one going there. The water levels are too high to cross there anyway. 
Yet, Greg Abbott broadly has not changed the policy. So now we have this talking point. We have this inflection moment. All the GOP governors are going to be there over the weekend. I think Trump's going to be down there. And in and, and a vacuum, if if that is a a talking point or a meme or a sort of symbolic get-together in pursuit of an objective outcome of states assuming full control of immigration enforcement and all of the 25 governors then going back home and criminalizing illegal aliens being present in the state and working towards deportations and working towards cutting off all the benefits and employment, which these all, most of these governors are simultaneously supporting, by the way, then that's a good thing. But if it's just about the photo op, then that's what you get. The left gets the policy, we get the talking point. The left gets the outcome, the result, we get the symbolism. And that's that. That's how it's going to continue working. To underscore this, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick held a press conference yesterday, and he had the number three ranking guy in Texas DPS behind him, and he quickly took two questions. And one of them was about what happens when Texas arrests illegal aliens. And he said, basically, as long as it's, you know, they didn't assault an officer, it was just kind of just took them in custody, they get processed, they get charged with a state misdemeanor, and you know what happens? They get given, they they get sent over to CBP. In other words, the entire point of Texas tagging them with a charge was to avoid the feds getting them and then catch and release. So this way, we're like, no, we're going to get them, throw them in jail, so then there's going to be a deterrent towards the future people. You know, maybe you can't deter the whole border, but at least they won't come through Texas. But it's a joke. This is what it is. It's all done for show. Everything with Greg Abbott and Operation Lone Star has been a bait and switch. But we don't have a sustained, focused, smart movement that is focused day-to-day on seeing, seeing it through. So what... Abbott has learned, and really every rhino has learned in the primaries, is that you just do a photo op, it makes everyone happy, and then they go on to Taylor Swift. This is the problem. There's nothing different. We've just gotten stupider. The GOP establishment is the same thing. The Trump movement did two things. It flattened the curve. So it made the establishment types easier to disguise as a grassroots type, and it also just made the grassroots type often stupider and just mindless, ADHD. And then that also leads to to our theme today, it's just false dichotomies, where we just have this mindless populism where we're not pursuing any objective truth. And that's why we're not accomplishing anything. Now, first, our sponsor today is our friends at QP Goat Soap. We've been talking about for so long how our friend Quinn Pittman, QP, and his and his uh, family, they started their own goat milk industry, literally on their farm in Volusia County, where they take goat milk and make turn it into goat soap, which is the healthiest soap you could imagine. It feels great on the body. It smells great. They have a ton of products. So now if you go to QPGoatSoap.com, they're actually expanding out to other products. And I was, I was always thinking, man, you know, imagine if you had that smell in your bathroom not the bad smell, um, on your clothes. So now they, they have amazing laundry soap, which will leave your clothes having that same smell. Um, 
why use all these harsh detergents on your clothing? Again, I often get rashes from them. Same same concept as with the soap. Um, I get this acne on my back from certain detergents. Um, this is all natural, handmade. It only takes about a tablespoon per load of laundry, and a 25-ounce bag will do about 90 loads. So it's time to take your QP Goat Soap to the next level. Go to qpgoatsoap.com. Use promo code Daniel for 10% off. That's qpgoatsoap.com. Promo code Daniel for 10 off. So I just want to go back to the, the, the primaries. You know, watching all of my colleagues focused on Taylor Swift. I mean, this is unbelievable. And it will be the next nonsense tomorrow. And I'm thinking, imagine if we focused on the primaries. On the primaries right before us. I'm getting a little nostalgia you know, I can't I can't believe how quickly this has gone on. It's been, it was roughly this time of year, you know, late 2013, early 2014, where I was building towards the 2014 primaries. And, and, and why are the 2014 primaries exactly a decade ago significant? Because we had the Tea Party in response to Obama, 2009-2010. And it was it was the best thing that we really had in our lifetime where it was a recognition that, oh my gosh, it's been, you know, 20, over 20 years since Reagan. We've gone backwards. You know, again, not that Reagan was the end all, but, but I mean, we, we just went downhill from there. And he had the Bushes and just the Doles and the McCains and all this stuff. And now we're suffering from o- Obama. We need a movement not just to fight back against Obama, but to really change this fake Republican Party once and for all. And we were starting to build a grassroots and it was a grassroots that was informed about policy, informed about the issues. It wasn't perfect, and ultimately we had the grift, and ultimately it got jujitsu into, into the GOP black hole. But there was a clear dividing line be- between the establishment and the grassroots. Now, more often than not, we came up short because they had the money, and we didn't. But ultimately, we were building awareness in conservative media, and conservative media gen- generally sided with us, although... You know, they didn't really get involved in the primaries, which, you know, most of these names, and they should have, but we were building towards there. You had 2010, you had 2012, and then the third Tea Party cycle was 2014. And that's where we had the most primary challengers, and, and you know, we, we culminated with uh, getting rid of Eric Kanner, the sitting House Majority Leader, going down in a primary. Unbelievable. And we had a lot of momentum. So I was t- I was going through my old tweets and I was just kind of re-upping them, putting them out. I said, look, so you know I'm not talk. All these people we hate, Roger Wicker and Deb Fisher and Lankford and Tillis and Rounds and Thune and Hoven and all these red state rhinos that just populate the Senate, leftists on every issue, full spectrum, fiscal, social, national security leftists. And... You know, I I oppose I literally opposed them at that time. And there were other options in most cases. But, you know, not enough people joined. Obviously, Mitch McConnell, we challenged him in 2014. And uh, we couldn't get a critical mass movement. We were always distracted, but we were headed in a better direction. Then Trump came in 2016. Now, Trump himself was fighting to win the primary. So he wasn't really endorsing others in primaries yet and, until he became president. But that was the first Trump election in the sense that Trump drove a lot of low-info turnout. And we had a lot of guys from 2014 that we had the numbers for them to win in 2016. And he had all these people like, 
all hate the establishment. That's why I'm voting for Trump. And then they proceeded to down the ballot to vote for every establishment guy. Because, again, it's all about whatever the media on Fox News tells you about. So, oh, I've heard of Trump the most because that's what everyone's talking about. And I heard of my local, you know, congressman, senator, whatever. And I'm voting for him, too. So we lost those and we went backwards. Horrible year. Then he becomes president and he endorses every single rhino. And he did it in 18. He did it in 20. He did it in 22. And even now, I mean, 2022, 2024, you might think, okay, he's party president, president, leader of the party. He's not going to endorse against sitting members of his party. But now he's no longer president. You know, some of these Republicans um, wanted him out after January 6th and they betrayed him. So you'd think he'd have revenge, right? But very few, only the ones that voted for impeachment in the House. But he's endorsing all these guys. And what we're having now is, after so many cycles of this, the well is dry. There's just no, that entire movement has been erased. We don't even have candidates to run. The few that file to run are often flaky or weird or reactionary or once in a while they are, the MAGA movement does get involved, but they're just kind of more MAGA populace. Um, like, for example, in Ohio, which is one of the earlier races, I think it is um, March 19th, so it's coming up. You have, uh, you have a Democrat in a red s- seat, right? One of the few Democrats remaining in a red state, assured Brown, so you know, a good chance of flipping that seat. So you have a big Republican primary. Now, I haven't looked into it much, because partly because I just don't see a star. You know, you have this LaRousse and 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 Dalton guy, um, two two guys that seem kind of just more establishmenty, not really gonna challenge the status quo. And then you have Moreno, who's he's not establishment in the sense like he's an ex in line. He's he is an outsider, but an outsider doesn't mean he's a right winger. Um, so the Trump movement, Trump himself and Vivek and Carrie Lake and all these people and J.D. Vance, who's the other sitting senator, they're all coalesced around him. And you know. There might not be anyone better in that race, but this is kind of the choice we have, Uh, a typical establishment and then just kind of this new populism. So this is a guy, I don't know much about him, but until recently he was for gun control, until recently he was open borders, now he's not. He was first for COVID, now he's not. You know, one of these deals that I'm not talking about 20 years ago, but a couple minutes ago, he was like to the left of the establishment, and now he kind of reads conservative Twitter, and everyone's all promoting him. And and look, I'm all for converts, but is that really what's going on here? And, and this is sort of what we have now. We don't have a bench of organizations and money working to do this. If all this conservative firepower, you know, right now you have this um, talking uh, Turning Point USA convention in, in Arizona and, and all the big talkers are down there. And I'm thinking if they used all of their money organization and airtime um, getting involved in these primaries. I mean, I mean, you you could easily change things, but we don't. We don't. You know, so March fifth is Super Tuesday. Those are the first primaries, because the congressional primaries aren't always together with the presidential. But you have all these southern states on March fifth. You have Arkansas. Now there's no governor, no statewide office up. But, you know, here's the rule of thumb. Unless you know your incumbent, and when I say incumbent, I mean local, city, 
state legislature, legislature, Congress, if you don't know them to be fighting for you, then I'd almost always vote for the challenger. Unless you go and you see the guys somehow to the left of him. In other words, what I'm saying is they're not always good, these guys. Often they're very off-kilter. I'm just going to tell you that. Now, <laughs> I'll take that over 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 incumbent. Um, you know, of, there's not a single good congressman from Arkansas. The only uh, And the only one who even has a filed challenger is Steve Womack in District 3. So if you're in Arkansas, he does have a challenger. He, he is, I think, one of the better guys in, uh, in the state Senate. Um, Alabama is up. Same deal. I don't think there's anything statewide. But you have a couple of rhino congressmen. There might be people filed to run. You have Texas. Texas, again, a bunch of congressmen up. A whole slate of challengers against rhinos in the state house. So that's going to be very important. North Carolina is up. Unfortunately, Tillis is not in cycle. And then you go to March 12th, where you have Mississippi. Again, Mississippi is another state, just horrible. There's not a single good guy from Congress there. You have, um, you know, just two utter leftist senators. Leftist senators. So, um, Wicker is in cycle. There is one of the founders of the Freedom Caucus, Dan Eubanks, from the State House, is challenging him. It's a March, March 12th. So that, I mean, again... You have a Freedom Caucus guy. I, again, I don't know how great that guy is. I don't know much about Dan Eubanks. I'll find out. And I know, you know, if you're listening or if you're one of your staff is, you could reach out to me. Um, but the point is, he'd be a lot better than Wicker. And if nothing else, it will just send the message. Worst comes to worst, you get another guy who's the same. But at least you have that deterrent power. But Trump endorsed Wicker. You see what I mean? Trump already endorsed Wicker. And why? It's not even like, okay, you have a really popular rhino Republican in a swing state that you need to carry for the presidential election. You get his support. I mean, it's a deep red state. You're going to get it. You're going to win in the presidential election. Why do you need a deep red state being owned by this? That's what I'm saying. Even eight years later, he hasn't changed. So therefore, we have no movement. We all, I mean, Wicker is pedal to the metal. Everything you want to say about the establishment, everything globalist, cuck, rhino, whatever term you want to use, Wicker is the embodiment of that. He is a more liberal, less charismatic version of Mitch McConnell. And that is not an exaggeration. And nobody could, you know, could could contradict a word I'm saying on that. He's a full spectrum, just the embodiment of the Uniparty. Big spending, big government, not just nothingness there. And he will walk into renomination. But it doesn't have to be that way. Imagine if you had this entire movement involved in that. But we've gone backwards. Chris McDaniel tried three times. He tried to run for two Senate seats, tried to run for lieutenant governor, and in most cases, Trump endorsed against him. So he came up short. And then March 19th is Ohio. So go down the list of each and every one of these and get as many people as possible to vote against any incumbent unless you know that they're fighting for you. Again, this is all within 
within five to seven weeks from now. And we have no movement on the field. And I just want to remind you, we did have a movement and it was growing and it was, it was just crushed. And this is the problem now. I speak to a lot of grassroots on the ground and it's like sometimes even when you do get a challenger, they're just really flaky and bizarre. So it's like the QAnon guys. So it's like, are you Mitch McConnell or QAnon? And I'm sorry, but that, that, that's crazy because that means that we're worse off than we were before. This is my thing. I am totally at peace. Trump won the primary. He's going to be the nominee. They're going to do what they do. Run the campaign. He'll run. Won't run the campaign. He won't run. And I get it. But can we at least focus on what is within our sphere of influence? Remember, no matter what happens, and I do believe it's going to be a bloodbath if nothing changes, the red states will remain red, the deep red states. At least statewide. I mean, we're, we're going to start losing sub- suburbs as we are in these states. But there's enough rural areas that you could still win statewide. So at least get better guys in there and better policies. But this is what happens when you have a movement built off of, oh, globalist, I don't want to be a globalist, or warmonger, I don't want to be a, oh, this is established. No, 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 you have to have fixed views, fixed objectives. And again, sometimes you have to finesse that Given the politics of the time, you know, like I have a very nuanced piece out. I don't have time today, but maybe we'll get into it later this week. This tax bill that they want to vote on in Congress, a bipartisan tax bill. You have all sorts of people supporting it for various reasons, opposing it for various reasons, all different reasons. And likewise, there's elements of it that are kind of pro-growth and worthwhile. But on net, both politically and policy-wise, I make the case that it's not good. It, it, it you know has more welfare ensconced as tax cuts, which are really just refundable tax credits. And it's just not really the issue and the focus of our time in, in, in the framework of, of the socialist monopolies we have, corporate monopolies, tax, tax cuts without solving the monopolies, the inequity between small businesses and big businesses created by COVID and other tendentious regulatory schemes, obviously the energy policies, the Federal Reserve monetary manipulation, all of that. It's not that I've changed my principles. I always do support tax cuts. I haven't changed on that just to be fake populist, but you know, you have to filter it through everything we're dealing with in a vacuum. Is this a good idea? And I come out with no. But again, we have to have real thought leaders and real strategic leaders, which of course we don't have. And that leads me to my next guest. So nowhere do we see this false dichotomy more on display than with foreign policy. Okay. I I, I turn on most of my colleagues now, and really this has been going on, we've talked about this since the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel, uh, with the Houthi attacks on our ships, where basically you either have this neocon right, or kind of quasi-neoliberals, Wilsonians, that we need to go full bore in Iraq forever, full bore in Afghanistan, then we finally get out of there, full bore in, in Ukraine. Then... Now they talk about, oh, we need to do this, we need to do that, and everyone gets very frustrated, and it's totally understandable. I'm very frustrated about them, and indeed, I was really among the first to get off this ship 
uh, you know, about, eh, I want to say about 12, 13 years ago when I started raising questions about Afghanistan while the Heritage Foundation and others were saying, stay the course, stay the course, stay the course. I was like, stay what course? Okay. So, you know, like just like with primaries, just like with everything else, you guys who were listening to me back then had a front seat at, at the table with all this stuff. We were doing this before it was cool. But then now people just overcompensate and it's like, oh my gosh, I don't want to hear anything about that. It's, it's warmongering, war, warmongering. So there's this narrative that b- b- every time Biden gives into Iran and makes us vulnerable to Iran and its proxies, and we get attacked, whether it's in the Straits in the Gulf of Aden or whether it's our bases precariously strung out throughout the Iraq, Jordanian, and Syrian border. Um, so they get injured, get attacked, ships get attacked. And then f- finally, finally, Biden does a half-empty sort of retaliatory strike like we saw in Yemen. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, you see that? Biden's getting us sucked into war with with Iran, and we really need to avoid that warmonger. So it's like a one-dimensional policy. It's either we're we're a warmonger or we're not. And we focus on 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 here at home. You know, John Jay, who is really the first person to forge our foreign policy, and who's also the first uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, said, I consider knowledge to be the soul of the republic. <laughs> knowledge does matter. Okay, we got to understand the players here, what is and isn't happening, and therefore what it is we should and shouldn't be doing. I, I've, I've been the one writing, I've been writing for years already, even before Biden, during Trump, by the way, that we should have gotten out of all those places. Um, there's no purpose to being there. In fact, we're actually defending Iranian assets in Iraq. And we're defending this $1 billion uh, monstrosity of an embassy that's always... Uh, you know, just just subject to attack for for nothing. Like, what what are we defending it there for? We're just there sitting ducks. There's no purpose to it. But two things are clear: we can't allow Iran to continue going on for forty years, and that's what it's been over forty years, forty five years with unanswered attacks. They have killed more of our troops than anyone else. Now, again, to be fair, it's confusing because a lot of times we shouldn't have been there to begin with. And that is true at the same time. But we can't allow them to simply kill us unanswered. And B, we got to keep the shipping lanes open. right? That is a strategic interest. So how do we pursue a strong, robust foreign policy without repeating the mistakes of the last 20 years of intervention, but without looking weak? I know that sounds like a novel <laughs> objective, but that should be our objective. Not just a talking point of, oh, I want to avoid World War III, but actually an affirmative policy that gets us to this America first um, peace through strength that I thought we all agreed with. So to guide us through this is one of my favorite people on foreign policy, one of the smartest thinkers, uh, Kyle Scheidler. He's director, senior analyst uh, for Homeland Security Counterterrorism at the Center for Security Policy. We always love having him on, and he's back with us today. Hey, Kyle, welcome back. You heard my opening monologue there. Do you agree or disagree with my diagnosis of at least the political situation on the right? I think you're you're right in that there are a good number of people on the on the right side of the spectrum who misunderstand the nature of the Biden administration's foreign policy and they misunderstand the nature 
of the sort of national security establishment, deep state um, way of thinking when it comes to foreign policy. They think that, um, you know, that, that these bad actors, and they are bad actors, uh, want to start wars and conquer uh, their opponents. And that's actually not really true. Uh, if you look at the way they've actually behaved in Ukraine, if the way they've actually behaved with the uh, Hamas-Israel war, what they do more than anything, what they love to do more than anything is restrain allies. So because that makes them feel important and they want to they want to have America at the front and center of cutting some kind of deal, right? They're always honing, they're trying to wedge their way into the trough of whatever diplomacy deal that they can sort of manage. So right now, for example, you have the Iranian proxies trying to, um, I, I was going to say provoke the United States, but that's not even really true because they know we won't do anything. What they are trying to do is give the U.S. an excuse to put pressure on Israel. And so what happens when the U.S. gets attacked uh, by the by the Iraqi militias that are run from Iran or they get uh, we get shipping attacked by the Houthis in the Red Sea? What happens is we do something feckless, like we warn them that we're going to bomb a camp and then we bomb it when it's empty and there's nobody there. And then we turn around to the Israelis and say, you see, we're getting attacked and that's why you have to stop what you're doing. You so, have to make peace with Hamas. So, so let, let's take that. Take this, you, you have, have to, to take this deal that we're trying to craft yep. for you between the Qataris and the Egyptians and whatever. And so World War III is not on the table with the Biden administration. That's not what this about is about. This is about forcing allies to surrender. So I want to take that first thing, you know, one tranche before we go on. That's a very important point because a lot of people kind of on the Tucker right, which I've been sympathetic to and really much advocating close to that for many years, is that, yeah, we, we, we got to stop with these just, you know, diplomacy actions, military actions, keeping military bases in places that we shouldn't be in. Um, but what what they've been presenting is this idea that, if you're pro-Israel, that means that you're for you're for all this stuff. But in fact, as you're noting, it's the opposite. It's it would be better for us and and Israel as well if we pulled out from having our troops in these places, um, because then they, they're not collateral damage where the Iranians could go and chip away at us as a means of pressuring Israel. We'll just get them out of the beehive, so we're not sitting right at the you know, at the beehive that we don't need to be. So we're away. So then Israel could do their thing cleanly and we don't have to worry about needing to pressure them. And we don't serve as hostages of the Iranians to go and screw with Israel. So it actually, the America first, what Tucker and, and those people want, which would presumably be to pull out of these places, would actually work in concert with a pro-Israel policy. Do, do I get that? You know, am, am I getting that right? Yeah, that's right. If we had a policy of uh, not restraining our allies and letting them do the things that are in their national interests that are also in our national interest. So, for example, I mean, the Israelis have an interest in ending the Houthi attempted blockade of the Red Sea. 
it is hurting Israeli ports. Um, and they have an interest in, in harming the Houthis and making them stop. But the U.S. interjected itself into that mission to prevent Israel from doing anything because Biden, the Biden administration, I mean, honestly, much like some of the folks on the right have a pathological fear of, you know, Iran escalating. But we know that, in fact, if you deal harshly with the Iranians, you can actually restrain them. We saw this with President Trump where the Iranians and their militias attacked us. He struck hard, took out Qasem Soleimani, and the Iranians blinked. They didn't do anything. And they actually stepped back a little bit. And so you have this Biden administration fear of escalation. It's actually, the you have almost sort of a horseshoe theory on foreign policy at this point where some folks on the right are sounding very much like the left. Instead of saying, how do we craft an America first policy that would ensure that we are robustly defending our interests? We are not hanging out in places to be hostages, to make deals or do diplomacy or engage in nonsense negotiations. But we let our allies and our friends do what they need to do. We do what we need to do. And we don't take any guff from anybody. And I think that's what the American people do want. You know, 20 years of failure in foreign policy has frustrated the American people. They've seen us lose in Afghanistan. They've seen us lose in Iraq, and they're tired of losing. Sure. And I'm tired of losing, too. But that doesn't mean that the American people want to get kicked around uh, by every podunk militia that comes along. I mean, that's not the American character either. So to to, to l- let me play devil's advocate a minute. We all agree that it's stupid that we're in some of these places protecting the Shiites from the Sunni insurgency, and that only helps Iran. So we all agree. Let's let's get out of there. Okay. Now you know what some of the guys on the right might say. Look, okay, you know, I mean, we're we we have a deep state here that is at war with its own people, at war with its own border. Who cares about any of this? Let's just you know diffuse tensions with Iran. We don't need to be there anyway and and call it a day. So wh- wh- well, where, I mean, yeah, if, where if would we head from there? With Iran, we, that would not be a bad idea. The problem is you can't. Iran will continue to provoke uh, because that's, that's, that's how their regime functions. So the question is, how do we restore deterrent? Okay, how do we restore deterrent? I think most people, except for lunatics on the right, but most people that are really hardcore on the right don't want to get kicked around like you're saying. We don't We don't care. When we're, we're done with this purple finger business and we're going to spread democracy to Iran. That's your problem there. But we're not going to allow you guys to kill our soldiers. Okay, number one, and we're going to not allow you to shut down the shipping lanes. How do we achieve that without getting embroiled into a very expensive, dangerous, messy war. Part of it is by, as we've said, unrestraining our our allies, letting them do what they need to do. You know, if Israel takes out Hamas, if they uh, take out or severely weaken Hezbollah, those are major strategic weaknesses for Iran, right? So we we can harm Iran simply by getting out of the way. 
we don't have to do anything. Uh, we just get out of the way and let uh, let the Israelis do what is in our interest for them to do, which is punish Iran. Um, we can we can operate through the through the sea lanes. We can operate uh, with our naval capability. We probably need to rebuild naval capability. I mean, it's distressing that we've moved naval ships from uh, from the the Asian uh, waters over to deal with the Houthis. And so now we we aren't uh, we aren't in the position to defend the Philippines and support our other allies over there because we're busy mucking about uh, in the Middle East trying to deter the Israelis from doing anything against our enemy Iran. So you know you can you can deter by making clear that you will respond aggressively. You're not going to give warnings. You're not going to hold hands, you're not looking for some kind of deal, but if you hit us, we're going to punish you. And we're going to punish you in a way that you'll feel. Not by, you know, taking out some ragtag Arab militia. I mean, the Iranians are always willing to fight to the last Arab. Uh, <laughs> but, but you can actually punish the Iranians themselves in ways that they will feel. Uh, the Iranian regime, I should say. Um, Without going whole hog and, you know, trying to do some, you know, major invasion, nation building nonsense. So a, a couple things I want to get to low, low intensity and high intensity. First, low intensity. It's not any intensity. It's just dip, di- diplomacy. A lot of people are looking at the situation like, oh, my gosh, Iran is so strong and they're so capable and we just got to run away with our tail tucked. Because we we you know we've screwed up for twenty years. We have so many problems at home. We got to avoid war. But what you're saying is, the, ironically, the only reason why they're so strong is because the Biden administration made them strong with the alliances that he's made. You know, reshaped the Middle East. And and ironically, look as you well know, I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump on domestic policy. But it's funny that Trump himself, you know, kind of cried about you know starting World War III with the fake attack on Yemen, which was nothing. Um, and a lot of his supporters are saying that, but Trump himself is a model. His presidency kept Iran in check, more or less, um, and that worked out for us without starting another war. And I think everyone recognizes that, so I don't understand why they feel we need to be weak. So yeah, I mean, stop giving them money, vitiate the Iran deal, isolate Iran and Qatar, and and you know, ally kind of the Abraham Accords uh, nations against them rather than. Biden allying everyone against uh, um, Israel, let Israel do what they need to do, get out of their way. Um, and then also, of course, and, and I want to lead up to any conflict, we got to get our guys out because I, I just want to correct one thing you said, and I, I I think you know this. So it was a very important point you made. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, if we do anything, Iran's going to start World War Three. Well, we took out their best general and they didn't make World War Three, but they did actually counterattack a base we had, and we did have a bunch of soldiers who were injured, my understanding is. But that's because we sit and have our finger in the bee's nest while we're trying to spray it with raid. Step back and then and then spray it. So, right, it, it, isn't that what we need to be doing? Get our stuff out. Stop allying. Um, but then at that point, would you support, let's say, some sort of series of airstrikes on important assets of Iran? Look, I mean, um, 
the Houthis could not do what they do they are doing if they weren't receiving shipments of weapons from the Iranians, if the Iranians were not backing and supporting them. I think you could punish uh, the Iranians by, you know, doing a strike on IRGC naval facilities that they're using to support the Houthis, something like that. That would be a strong message, but would not necessarily provoke. But yeah, again, you are perfectly correct that if the part of the reason we can't or haven't done that is because we have all of these little bases that are undefended with a handful of people that are doing who knows what, frankly, nothing strategic. <laughs> and and that those people are easy targets. And so we rightfully say, well, if we do anything, that then those people are at risk. Well, let's get them out there. There's, if, if you don't have a reason if you're if you don't have a strategy for what those people are supposed to be doing, why are they there? And if those people are there, if you you, you are putting you know there's a reason to be forward deployed, right? To have more reach and and to be able to conduct actions where you need to. But if those people that you forward deployed, and unfortunately America has a bad history of this, right? We put forces in what we call tripwires, and the idea is that nobody will do anything because they know if they hit the tripwire and something happens to some Americans, America will come crush them. Only that doesn't work anymore because everybody knows that we're not coming <laughs> and that we won't defend our people yep. and that we'll just take the hit and, and run with our tails between our legs, as you said. So, yeah, if they're not serving a purpose, get them out of there. No, and, and this is where we're kind of caught because then the Nikki Haley types and really represented by the Senate GOP, they're going to constantly say, no, we need to be there. We need to be there more. And, 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 you know, and rightfully, a lot of people are ticked off at them. And then they're crafting this kind of pacifist, uh, you know, talking point where we just want a talking point of I'm avoiding war. The goal, none of us want war, but the goal of life is not to not be a warmonger or avoid war. No, the, the, the thing is to stand up for our strategic interests, properly define them, and peace through strength. And I think, like, you know, one of the points that you're making that, that I don't see anyone, or maybe Lee Smith also, he's done a good job of this, but very few people are making is that we don't know what the world would look like if we actually didn't ally with Iran, the reason why it looks so difficult and there's this false dichotomy that we either just run away um, and look weak and allow them to attack or start World War III is because the administration has artificially propped them up. I mean, could you talk a little bit about that, that this administration is not just allied with Iran. It's it's a little bit more than that. No, it, it, that's exactly right. I mean, Iran has been the beneficiary of much of our policy in the past 20 years, some of it unintentional and some of it, frankly, deliberate, especially under the Obama and the Biden administrations, it's been quite deliberate, giving them money, releasing, uh, relaxing sanctions, um, not doing anything to uh, interfere with the Iranian control, extending control over Iraq, uh, deliberately restraining our Arab uh, allies, in fact, you know, the Biden administration was absolutely brutal against Saudi Arabia, which was trying to defend itself from the Houthis firing missiles at them, which is now the problem that we have. Yep. 
So we, we restrained the Saudis on behalf of the Iranians, and now we have to deal with their problem, whereas they were dealing with their problem uh, before we got in the way. And so, yeah, I mean, I think Lee is completely correct in that the, the scenario that we, we, ha- we find ourselves in is with this propped up Iran, but most analysts completely ignore who it was who propped them up, which was us. <laughs> no, I mean, that this is the irony. We, we take a look at, at the landscape where you have the Biden administration making Iran so strong, and then we create this false dichotomy of, oh my gosh, uh, you know, Biden's going to get us into war with Iran. But the reality is the Biden administration is run by Iranian spies. Um, they're not about to get into war with them. They're going to do some face-saving action like they did the equivalent in Yemen, and they're going to continue doing that. Their goal is not World War III. Their goal is to weaken America and its allies, to weaken America and its allies. And it creates this false vision that it's either you do the neocon, you know, referee al-Qaeda versus Houthis in Yemen, referee Jordan, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. No. I mean, it, it. that's not what it's about. It's like, you know, it's what it always was. We hit hard, quick, um, and, and get out when we need to. And then, you know, you do that enough, you don't even have to do it because it's a deterrent. And, and again, there's proof of concept with Donald Trump himself, which is so bizarre. Although I think there were those that didn't like the fact that he took out Soleimani, and I think those are not reachable. But I think most people who agree and liked his foreign policy, at least vis-a-vis the Middle East, um, should understand that this uh, this choice between pacifism and and uh, Nikki Haley's approach is just a false dichotomy and stems from a misreading of Biden. I mean, Kyle, I'm also seeing people like Tucker insinuate that Biden is like getting into a war for Israel. Um, <laughs> could you describe some of Biden's actions? vis-a-vis Israel and the casualties they're taking because of him? I mean, as far as I can tell, the Biden administration's primary intent with the Hamas-Israel war is to overthrow Bibi Netanyahu. Everything they have done has been to deliberately undermine uh, the Netanyahu government, that they and their NGO allies played a major role in trying to set up those protests for the judicial reform that occurred just prior to the attack, um, you know, over the past couple of years. They they have done everything in their power to try to stick their nose in to undermine the Israelis uh, in this in this fight. Um, to try to restrain the Israelis from aggressively dealing with Hamas, which you know, as people know, killed thousands of people or 1,500 people, something like that, in this initial attack, which is a massive number when you're talking about Israelis' population, uh, and has done everything in their power to restrain the Israelis from uh, deterring the Iranians, whether that's dealing with uh, Hezbollah in, in Lebanon or what have you. It, to look at what the Biden administration is doing and and come away thinking that they are in some way pro-Israel. Uh, I don't. I don't know how you get there. I just. I don't. Yep. I don't see it. And I think people are falling for. You know, there's a major campaign on the far left now with communist with the communists 
and and some of the Islamist groups that are deliberately trying to paint Biden as somehow pro-Israel. And I think people are misunderstanding what's going on there. That is a campaign intended to move the Overton window, right? To get the Biden administration even more than they currently are. And people don't understand that. But the Biden administration has been uh, in other words, Biden's not going to get up there and say in the back since this war started. Yeah, he's not going to get up there and say, I love Hamas. Right. He's not going to do that. Um, like he's not going to sound like Ilan Omar, but the result of his policies really are the same. Um, so you, so what you're saying is they're trying to move the Overton window. And th- this ties into the beginning of our show. The elements of the right are becoming mindless that it's all they define their views by relative to the left, whatever they see the left doing, rather than affirmative truth and affirmative good, what is it we want to achieve? And I always tell people, look, if you don't like Israel, it's fine. I mean, you know, we're in America here. Who cares? Let them do their thing. But don't lie to yourself about the fact pattern on the ground that in order to assuage your guilt, you want to make sure you're not siding with Biden. So like, well, yeah, well, Biden's with Israel and Biden's a warmonger against Iran. I mean, that, that's just ridiculous. That's that's absolutely not true. The opposite is true. And um, I think this is just a symptom of the time, but it's important for voices like yours and and Lee and other guys to eschew this false dichotomy between neoconservative Wilsonian intervention uh, versus just pacifism, which is just, you know, kind of coming full circle, being a plain old leftist. And and all the more reason why it's just a shame if, if Biden's able to win reelection, because Frankly, we can't achieve that deterrent posture under Biden because any action he does take is going to be kind of like a COVID vaccine, <laughs> like, you know, enough to create problems, um, but not enough to solve anything. And, you know, then then it's just going to create and not yeah. intended, not intended to solve it. And it's not intended to because they're obviously, you know, allies with Iran. Where could people find more uh, of your work and where are you on Twitter? Sure. So they can find all of my work at securefreedom.org. That's the center's website, securefreedom.org. And they can find me on Twitter at Scheidler K, my last name, S-H-I-D-E-L-E-R-K on Twitter. Scheidler K. Well, again, Kyle, thanks again for being that beacon of light uh, between the false dichotomy of different dark views. That's the spirit of the age, but we need to bust through it. Uh, we need to be precise. We don't have to uh, overcompensate. Let's be precise and uh, really appreciate your work and looking forward to you coming back. Take care. Thank you. So, folks, there you have it. Um, I, I think th- this is the sort of conversation we need to have on foreign policy, but on a lot of issues as well. And, and it's funny. I, I find myself often having to push back against people that on the surface are using some of the talking points of policies that I myself have been very passionate about. But it's like, wait a minute, you're you're coming from a different direction. Because ultimately, it's not about a talking point. I don't need to achieve a talking point of, oh, I'm not a neocon or I'm not a globalist. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm against World War III. I'm, I'm against warmongering. Um, anti-establishment. It's you want an affirmative outcome. And I think a lot of people just don't understand that. And and look, this has been endemic of foreign policy forever because all sides have done this. Whenever uh, a president of a different party is in power, they're always going to criticize whatever he does. It's too much, too little. 
Um, you know, so ironically, shutting down shipping lanes is something we should all agree upon. But because Biden was president, everyone criticized it. Oh, he's bad. Now, there is what to criticize, but they criticized from the wrong direction. He didn't do enough. It was a fake. It was a fake strike. Um, it, it literally didn't do anything. He warned them about it. Uh, well, Daniel, but but you think it should be more? We should create another war? Well, I mean, what do you want? Um, ultimately, posture does matter. And most of this, you don't even have to use the military for. It's just because the Biden administration is siding with Iran in terms of alliances um, with the Arab world, with Israel and everything, it's created an unnatural strength and strategic advantage for Iran coupled with having our soldiers as hostages needlessly. It's almost like the whole purpose of putting them there is to be a hostage, which kind of is the purpose. That's what it is. Whatever destroys America, whatever weakens America, it's not so much about starting a war. And I think he's right. It's become a a talking point on the right. Starting World War III, I don't really think that's the point. It's a little bit off message. Again, I don't agree with trying to start World War III, but that's not really the issue here. And we kind of sometimes believe our own rhetoric a little bit too much. And let's let's focus more on the policy outcomes and what we're trying to achieve rather than simply just, just rhetoric. And if we actually kept focus, there's a lot we can do. So again, we'll get back to some of the other issues, but wanted to do at least something on what's going on because that is a big deal. We can't have our soldiers getting mowed down. We can't have shipping lanes being shut down. And no, the only choice beyond that is not, uh, you know, another 20 years of Afghanistan and Iraq sort of engagement. That's a false dichotomy. Let's get away from that. Let me know if you agree, disagree. Daniel Horowitz at startmail.com is the email at armconservative on Twitter. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all. And thank you for listening.